It is a joy to bring God's word to you today. I I obviously came just from our service. We nearly had a full house again, which is fantastic. Um, One of the challenges of being a a bigger church, not that we're massive, but a a bigger church in context um, in COVID is it's really hard. (laughs) You lose sight of people really easy and you can't even get everybody on Zoom because not everybody wants to do on Zoom. So it's actually been really difficult. So to see people coming back together again and then not wanting to go home and spending time together has just been a pure joy. So to come from that and then come here and sing with you is just like, I'm in a happy place. I'm happy not to preach. I'm just a happy guy. But I think Riley would be disappointed if I did that. So, So let's turn in our Bibles please to Luke chapter 10. John Calvin once said, we owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God. And it's so true. You know, when we gather around this word, we don't just gather around a book. It's not J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis. This is God. We're being addressed by God himself. That's massive. We owe to Scripture the same reverence we owe to the Lord And so as I read this passage, which is Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, I want you to understand as a congregation this afternoon, God is speaking to you. The highlight in any service is being addressed by God himself. And this is what he says. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the way you address us so gently and lowly and graciously. Lord, I pray that this text would come alive in our hands today and would come alive in our hearts so that by the time we leave, we are aware we have changed you have addressed us and lord would we listen to you in jesus name amen you know by now in the gospel of luke jesus has set his face towards jerusalem he is making his way towards the cross where he will give his life away as a ransom for many And so right now, as we catch up in the story in Luke chapter 10, he is in a season of training his disciples. He's on his way to give his life as a ransom for many, but prior to getting there, he is going to be training his disciples and helping them understand what it all means to follow him as Lord and Savior and what it all means for them in their lives. And so in chapter 9, he explains to them that to follow him is going to involve denying themselves and taking up their cross daily and following him. I mean, that's a massive deal. Being a Christian is not a jolly for Jesus. This isn't a fun run that we're on. And he makes it very clear. And it's important because in the West, I think we can think, sweet, I'm a Christian. This is going to be sweet. I'll put his sticker on my bumper and I'll just be like, he'll probably bless me in every way. Well, no. 
actually, he says, follow me. It's going to be really hard. It's going to involve denying, it, denying yourself. The cross doesn't sound like a barrel of laughs. It's kind of the clue. It's not going to be easy. This is going to be challenging and tempting. But then in the very next chapter, in chapter 10, having explained to them that it's going to cost, he then explains, though, that this is an adventure of great joy. There is a purpose to what we're doing. We're to pray for the lost. We're to proclaim the glories of Christ to the lost. There's power in this mission. He himself is standing with us, enabling us and helping us each and every step of the way. And there's a treasure on this mission. Namely, that we get the joy of knowing that our names are written in the book of life. We know Jesus as Lord and Savior. We're forgiven, we're redeemed, we're adopted. Heaven is our home. And he stands with us and walks with us. So as we proclaim the gospel, we have the joy of seeing people come to know him as Lord and Savior. So within two chapters, he explains, listen, it's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging on this journey, but it's going to be epic. It's going to be filled with joy and peace. It's going to be a great thing. Give your life away to it. And then right at the end of chapter 10 is this story. And it's this story where he really helps us see, listen, as Christians, understand that it's going to cost, yet it's going to be a joy. There's going to need to be a fuel for this. And if you don't get this bit right, it doesn't work. If you want this adventure to be a true joy and to be peaceful and to be faith-filled, you're going to need a fuel for this great adventure. And that, in context, is what this text is all about. To help us see the fuel for this great adventure that we need, he takes us to a small house in Bethany, en route to Jerusalem, the house of one Mary and Martha. Their brother is probably the more famous one. You know him. He is Lazarus, who later on in the text comes back from the dead. And as he enters into this house on this day, the story begins to unfold, and Luke wants us to see three things in particular. Now, they're not my points, just to give you the heads up, but they are things I want you to see and understand. See, as Dr. Luke takes our hand, the first thing he wants to help us see is Mary's devotion. It says that Mary was a lady that sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. To be around Mary was to be around a lady who loved Jesus, who loved the Lord, and the fruit of that was she loved to sit at his feet and hear his teaching. You know what then really qualified as part of Mary's life? She was a joyful, peaceful, worshipful soul. She just so loved Jesus. We know it because later on in the very same text, she's the one that comes into the party very, very quickly just before Jesus dies. And breaks the alabaster jar of ointment over Jesus' head and anoints him with perfume. The disciples are really upset, thinking, man, there's really expensive perfume. But for her, she understands, no, the best thing in my life, the greatest thing in the room is Jesus. And so he can have it all. Mary was a joyful, happy soul who loved Jesus and counted it a complete honor to give her life and her all to following him. And her sister was likewise. Martha also really loved Jesus. And yet Martha, on this occasion, is distracted. She is distracted with much serving as pertains to her life. And as a result, guess what? She is anxious and troubled by many things. Loves Jesus, but Jesus is in the room. Great, I better go serve him. 
fruit, anxious and troubled. You know, I'm sure we can all relate to that to different degrees. We can get distracted with many things, can we not? And what's the fruit? Get anxious and troubled. Anxious and troubled about our relationships. Anxious and troubled about our kids. Anxious and troubled about finances. Anxious and troubled about our jobs, where we're going to live. Anxious and troubled about our church. How is this all going to work out? Life is filled with anxieties, is there not? And for Martha in this moment, she is anxious and troubled by many things. The weight of the world is on her shoulders. And the point then of the story is not complicated. We see it in verse 41 when Jesus says, Martha, Martha. There's a, there's a clue. When Jesus says your name twice, he's really getting your attention. Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But only one thing is necessary. The point of the story is that as we follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior, knowing that it's going to cost, but knowing it's going to be filled with great joy, we're not going to receive that great joy and peace and faith for the adventure ahead unless we're sitting at the feet of Jesus. Because if we ain't sitting at the feet of Jesus, we're going to be distracted and anxious and troubled about many, many, many things. But if we actually take time daily in our lives to sit, sit at the feet of Jesus, it's then that we get fuel for the adventure. And it's then that following him becomes a joy and a peace and an unbelievable experience of your life. Do you see? It's so simple. And it's obviously simple. For those of you that came from Warunga, you will have heard me preach on this text before. You will have heard me mention this text before. I'm sure in your last two years of being here in Parramatta, Riley's either preached on this text or referenced this text. So why do we not do it? It's so simple. You want to be anxious and troubled? Great. Don't sit at the feet of Jesus. Oh, okay. I better sit at the feet of Jesus. But I don't. Why not? Why is that so complicated? Why is it so hard? You see, for us as Christians, if we're honest, I think it can sometimes be a battle to actually sit at the feet of Jesus, can't it? And this afternoon, I, I want to help you understand why that is. And I want to help you understand in particular that the reason why this battle is so difficult is because this battle isn't just against flesh and blood. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul introduces us to the idea that these things are hard because your battle is not just against flesh and blood, it's against principalities and powers of the air, namely Satan. Graham Cole, in his wonderful book, Against the Darkness, says it this way. He says, so many Christians in the West live as though the story of creation involved in the main just two characters, just God and ourselves. I heard that at the pastor's conference a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, that is so true. We are so tempted to live in the West as if the entirety of my Christian adventure is me and Jesus. But the truth of the Bible is there's not two main characters in your story. There's three. It is me, it is Jesus, and then it is a shadowy foe that wants to do all he can to pull me away from Jesus. It's the way he operates all the time. That's why Jesus tells us in John 10, you know, I came that you may have life and life in abundance, but he came to kill and rob and destroy you. That's why in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, we are instructed as Christians to be sober-minded, be watchful, 
For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Sovereign Grace Church of Parramatta, are you watchful? Are you as an individual watchful, understanding it is not two people in this story, it is three. There is an adversary that wants to devour you, that wants to take you away, that wants to distract you. My observation is all too many people in Australia are completely unaware of that reality and live as if Satan doesn't even exist. That's exactly what he wants. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, It is easy for believers, especially in the Western world, where the church is generally prosperous and respected, to be complacent and to become oblivious to the seriousness of the battle around them. They rejoice in victories that involve no battles and a kind of peace that is merely the absence of conflict. Yet theirs is the victory and peace of the defector who refuses to fight. They're not interested in armor because they're not engaged in the war. But God gives no deferments or exemptions. Listen, for his people are at war and will continue to be until Christ returns. Sad, but true. We are at war with Satan. Satan is at war with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and anybody who aligns themselves with him, which is you. He wants to do all he can and use all his weaponry to do everything he can to destroy you, to blind you, to tempt you, to accuse you, to devour you, listen, to take you down. That's why Peter tells us to be watchful. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11 not to be outwitted by Satan nor be unaware of his scheme. Do you live that way? Do you live watchful, paying attention? Or do you live like he doesn't even exist? You know, we are not to be anxious about Satan. Not at all. As Christians, you do not need to fear the evil one because greater is he that is in you than is he in the world. You know, without any shadow of a doubt, Satan isn't actually scared of you, but he's certainly scared of the one who's in you. <laughs> he's not too freaking about little old me, but he does not like the great Azan that lives in me. So we have nothing to fear when we're talking about Satan. But just because we shouldn't be anxious about him does not mean that we shouldn't be alert to him. Because the Bible tells us to be alert. Unawareness and alertness leaves us vulnerable to his schemes. Very vulnerable to his schemes. And we must pay attention to his schemes. I've had the privilege of being a pastor now for 21 years years and in my observation when it comes to church life Satan's schemes are multiple but there's two in particular that are like just the easy place the first I think is that he will do all he can to separate you from one another divide the church sweet because he knows if you stay together, you'll spur one another on to love and good deeds. You'll help one another. You'll love one another. You'll confess to one another. You will be a city on a hill. So I'm going to take you guys out. See, the church is 
the dearest place on earth, as Charles Haddon Spurgeon said. The church is wonderful. And when it's operating well, we are a family, we're a body, we're a temple. It is, a, it is the dearest place on earth to be a part of a good local church. And yet, however good it is, here's the harsh reality. When you become a member of a church, it really is like when sinners say, I do, across the board. It's a family coming together. They bring all their gifts, all their good stuff, and their sins with them as well. It's a challenge. And so here's the harsh, I trust, unsecret reality. Uh, as being a part of Sovereign Grace Church Parramatta, you will be sinned against at times. Sorry. And you will sin against others at times. We shouldn't boast about that. It's not like a happy discovery, but it's a reality. So don't, you know, don't sin against others and say what Dave said we would. No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is the harsh reality is there will be times when you are sinned against. And God knows that's going to happen. That's why he preempts it in his word and tells us exactly what we're to do when that happens. And in his word, he gives us two options. You're in the context of a local church. You are sinned against. You are disappointed. What do you do? You've only got two options. Option A is that you overlook the offense. That's what it talks about in the Proverbs. So you overlook it for the greater good. It's like, you know what? It's not the end of the world. I'll just cop it and overlook it. I love them. I forgive them. Let's move on. Option B is, well, you know what? I think I need to talk to them. So you go to your brother, like Jesus tells us to, in love, and you tell them their fault in a desire to win them. They're the two options. Option A and option B. What do most Christians pick? Option C. <laughs> that isn't in the Bible. But there's an evil one that wants to give us option C. And option C is this. Option C is, I'm not going to overlook it, but I'm not going to go to them. I'm going to harbor the offense. The challenge then is we start to get bitter about it. We start to get really disappointed about it. And then we start sharing, which is Christian for gossiping and slandering. And as we start to gossip and slander about what we're feeling, even though it's very real to us, but we're actually got bitter about it, we're not even still not going to the right person. We're going to everybody else, and then people get hurt, they get disappointed, and nearly every time disunity and ultimately division comes as a fruit. That's how it works. Harbor the sin, you get bitter, you start gossiping, you start slandering, there's disunity, there's division. What happens? People leave, the church starts to go through difficulties, and we have no idea that Satan is standing on the corner of our lives at that point going, that's what I always wanted. I was trying to split you up. Clueless. My friends, we need to be alert to that. That's why Jesus says, you've got two options. Overlook it or go to your brother and seek to win them in love. They're the only two options as to how you'll eagerly maintain the unity. That's why gossip in this local church for you should have no place among you. It shouldn't be coming out of your mouth. And when you hear it, you should say, in the name of Jesus, please stop. I am not the person you should be talking to about this. Please go and talk to them. I don't even want a part of it. We must God, because Satan is involved in those things, seeking to split you up. But there's also another thing that I think Satan does that is even more aggressive than that one. He will not only do all he can to separate you from one another, he will do all he can to separate us 
from Jesus. You interrupt this relationship, it all falls apart. It all goes. And in a nutshell, that is why it is really hard to sit at the feet of Jesus. Because there's not just two people involved. There's three. There is one who wants to stop you doing that. It's funny, you know, it it kind of feels like sometimes if following Jesus was every day you need to give half an hour to social media, we'll be like, sweet, I can do that. But the thought of every day giving five minutes to prayer, man, I feel very tired. What's that? It's so bizarre. It's because there's a third person involved. We must be aware of that. And so in care, I want to do all I can this afternoon to help you see that there are three people involved. And to help you see then by God's grace what the lies are that Satan tends to give us as to why we then don't sit at Jesus' feet. My experience of lies from the pit of hell is they're a bit like cockroaches and that when you start to shine a light on them, they run for freedom. They don't remain, but they thrive in darkness. So what are the lies? There's four that I want to go through in the remainder of our time this afternoon. Four lies that I want to expose for what they really are, which is satanic lies, which do stop us then sitting at the feet of Jesus. Here's the first one that I think Satan loves to tell us. It's this idea, number one, but it just won't do anything. You know, sitting at the feet of Jesus is great for everybody else, but for you, you know, don't you remember you read Leviticus in 1996 and it was a horrible experience. You got nothing out of it. It doesn't work for you. Satan loves to give us those lies. This type of lie is what Satan has been peddling since the start of creation. Genesis 3 verse 1. But did God actually say? That's the way he operates. He takes like a half-truth and he twists it. So right there in the Garden of Eden, what he's saying to Adam and Eve is, yeah, but did God really say that? He's trying to distort the truth. He's trying to twist the truth. He's trying to undermine the God of heaven. Listen, so that nobody be confused on the premise of, will me spending time sitting at the feet of Jesus have any effect? Yes, (laughs) it will make a profound effect to the rest of your life. It will change everything. If you want to receive joy and peace and faith, you must be drilled into this word. You must be a person sitting at the feet of Jesus. There is no plan B. And that's what the Bible tells us. Listen to just a few, a small sampling of texts to help us see that. Psalm 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. This is what he's like. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. How happy is that? He's saying, listen, if you want to give your life to this word, you meditate on it day and night, you give yourself to sitting at the feet of Jesus in this word, you would be somebody who is stable, who's durable, who's refreshed, who's nourished, who's fruitful, no matter what the sun is doing. That's massive. What a promise. Jesus himself then in John 15 says, Abide in me and I in you. 
as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Listen, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Zip. It's not complicated. And you've, we're busy listening to Satan who's going, oh, I just don't think it works for you. Bah! Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. But with him, you can do a ton of things. When you spend time with him, you'll be stable and durable, refreshed and nourished. Luke chapter 6, again, Jesus himself. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built, but the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. That's massive. If you want to be a person who thrives in their Christian life, who does it with joy and faith and peace, build your life upon the rock. Otherwise, what happens? Difficulties come, challenges come, COVID lockdown comes, and guess what happens? You just get blown over like a flake. It's all in his word. It's not complicated. But it gets complicated because there is a shadowy foe that says, it won't do anything. It's a lie from the pit of hell itself. It will do everything. My observation, of, I don't know your church, but from our church during the COVID lockdown, for folk that have given themselves to this word, they've done pretty well. Folks that haven't, we're still picking up the pieces with them now because they've been blown everywhere. Guys, drill yourself into this word. This is what will sustain you because storms are coming. <laughs> it's going to keep happening. Hopefully the lockdown never again, not that storm. But there'll be other storms. We must be driven into God's word. So this lie that it just won't do anything. When you're tempted to think that, you must rebuke it in Jesus' name. And be aware that is a lie. But that's not the only lie. The other lie is, number two, but it's just too hard. You ever tempted to believe that one? It's just too difficult. I mean, where do you begin? It's just too hard. Everybody else seems to thrive reading the Bible. Uh, it isn't working for me, you know. It's just really difficult to get in there and just get in there. Well, my friends, again, that's just a lie. I mean, for a start, God has given us himself. When you became a Christian, you've been given the mind of Christ. I'm not sure we want to be looking back on the mind of Christ and going, well, it's just too hard. You have, been, you have a gift. And in particular, God has given you two things to help you to ensure that it's not too hard and it's very, very doable. The first is himself. God in his grace has given you himself. In John 14, this is what we read. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. For I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. You get it? 
Jesus is saying, when you become a Christian, I'm going to come and live in you. Who is this one that we're talking about? Well, for those of you the kids, he's the one that we teach them that you know what Moses stood against the sea and God opened up the sea. Daniel was in the lion's den and God took the jaws back from the lion. But yeah, I just find quiet times a bit hard. They're a bit hard for me. What? Jesus himself through his spirit is in you in all power and all grace and all splendor. You can do all things that he's called you to through him who gives you strength. He will enable you to do all things. Jeff Vanderstelt wonderfully puts it this way in Gospel Fluency in talking about this power that now resides in you. He says, we are talking here about the very real and dynamic power of God to create, redeem, and save. The power I'm talking about brought the world into existence. It's the same power that breathed life into dust and formed man. This power struck down the Egyptians and parted the Red Sea so that all Israel could pass through on dry ground. The power we proclaim in the gospel is the same power that was visible on top of Mount Sinai, ablaze with fire that was exerted to conquer Israel's enemies and that helped David to conquer Goliath with one stone. For this is the power that enabled Jesus to overcome temptation, preach with authority, cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead, and rise from the dead himself. That's the power of God that resides and lives in you. No wonder the Apostle Paul said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Because he's aware in and of himself, i got nothing. But he's got everything. He's the creator of all and he lives in me. So right up front, when we're tempted to take on the lie that it's just too hard, we need to remember who it is that lives in us, okay? Who it is that lives in us in power and splendor. And then secondarily, we need to understand that God in his grace has not only given us himself, he's also given us each other. Again, that's why he wants to split you up. But he's actually given you each other to help you. So when you think about the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I think sadly too often we think of that as that's just evangelism. But actually not. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Well, that's all of this. That's going to take decades. Correct. So we're all called to be making disciples of one another, to play in our part. So we're the strengths in some fantastic. Help these guys with that. Use your strengths to help these guys with that. That's church life. To understand, it's not like we just, I become a Christian and say, now I know everything. I know everything. No, you don't know everything. You don't know anything. So we need to find other people that do know and do understand. And can you help me with this? Can you disciple me? Can you aid me in this endeavor? You know, one of the best things we can do as Christians comes when we're willing to humble ourselves before the Lord and find somebody older than us or just more mature than us and say, can you help me? Because I don't even know where to start reading the Bible. That's okay. We don't, it's not like we pop out the womb and know everything. And it's the same when we become a Christian. We don't pop out born again and just I know all things. No, it's not, I need to be discipled and, and helped. So I'd encourage you, if you don't know how to read the Bible, there's no shame in that. What is, what is the shame is that you're never putting your hand up and asking for help. Whereas this is family life. 
We should all do that. And I want to give you some help right now just to show you what, what I do. And what I do, if it's a help to any of you, if you're finding it harder to read the Bible, is I have a men's devotional Bible. I wouldn't recommend that for the ladies, but there's a ladies' version as well. A men's ESV devotional Bible. I find this wonderful because it has 365 devotions in it, which I find super helpful. But also at the start of each of the books, for people like me, it tells you the author and the background and the key theme and the summary. Fantastic. Because when you get to a book like, I mean, unless you're geniuses, which you probably are, might just be me. But, you know, when you get to a book like Obadiah or Ezekiel, you're like, what in the world is this? You know, who, who wrote this? When, what is this that I have before me? You know, it's so helpful to have somebody hold your hand that understands God's word, like the way this is written, to help us understand, okay, oh, I see now why they wrote it. And I see who wrote it, and I see who they were speaking to. So helpful. And then when the devotions unpack it as well, it's just super helpful. Married with that, I don't just like start in the Bible. I mean, for me, before having a plan to read the Bible, I just kept like reading the Psalms a lot. Do you ever face that? I, I know in our growth groups in Warunga, like you usually know when people aren't doing too well, because you're like, oh, what are you reading then? Oh, the Psalms. Hmm. That tends to be the thing we say all the time when we're not quite sure where to go in the Bible. So I invested in a free five-day Bible reading program, which is fantastic. You can get it off the internet, fivedaybiblereading.com, perfect. And I got hold of this, and because I'm a kind of process guy, I was like, this is great. This is going to take me through the Bible in a year. And I don't want to keep reading the Psalms for the rest of my life. So I would like to read other books of the Bible. And this almost changed my life. And because the way they're doing it is like you read Genesis and Mark, and it's showing you links of like, oh, my word. When, this, when Jesus is quoting this guy here, I've just read about that guy there. And they start to link all the different things. And you're like, this is a, such a blessing to people like me. So this, married with the ESV devotional Bible, I then have noise-canceling headphones that I wear. I have five children, for those of you who don't know me. There is no secret place in the house. There's nowhere you can go and be quiet. So I have noise-canceling headphones. In my home, when I'm doing my quiet time, it's like the eBay advert, for those of you who have seen it. It's like everybody's wearing noise-canceling earphones. They're all talking about sushi with Carol. It's just the way we operate. It's a few people have seen the advert. That's good. And so that's what I do. And within my earphones, I actually have a little app on my phone, which is also free, which is the ESV Bible. And I press play on what I'm doing, and it's reading to me God's word. And for me, it's like I'm sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's like, tell me what it's saying. I'm reading what it's saying. And then I'm praying through what it's saying, and then I'm reading the devotion in it. Brilliant. All I'm saying is not that you have to do that. I'm just saying if you ask people, they'll be able to show you some things. If this is what helps me, and maybe it'll help you, or maybe it'll aid you. But if we never talk about it, because we're all meant to be professional Christians, Satan stands on the side. They don't know how to read the Bible. And they're too embarrassed to ask. Brilliant. They'll never spend time with Jesus. Don't be duped. Third lie. This probably is one of Satan's favorites. But I just don't have time. I would love to. I appreciate that it will change my life. I even know where to start. But you don't know my life. And my life, I have no time. There's no time to do anything. I think this is one of the most common lies to embrace. And yet, in all honesty, my friends, listen, it 
is a lie. It's not true. I was with one of my pastor friends in Sydney a while ago, and he was telling me about an ABC uh, sort of document that he had been reading. And what he discovered in this ABC document is that the average Australian spends one month a year on social media and one month a year watching television. So I instantly didn't believe him. I thought, there's no way that's going to be the case. So I went home and I Googled it. Guess what? The average Australian spends one month a year on social media and one month a year on watching TV. All that actually equates to is 60 minutes to 100 minutes a day. And so the premise is the average Australian, they spend 60 minutes to an hour and a half a day on their social media, whether it be on the phone or on the computer, whatever it be, and then they'll do the same when they're watching television. Two months of their life. And the same average Christian Australian says, I haven't got time to read my Bible. It's a lie. It's not true. You're being duped. You see, in reality, we all have the time. What we don't always have is the right priority. And there's a difference. There's always time for things that we think are important. Just sadly, sitting at the feet of Jesus in the jar of our life is usually the last rock in. And my rock, you know, my jar's full now. I have no more time. You need to empty out that jar and make sure Jesus comes in first. And now let's talk about everything else. I was even talking to somebody this week and they're like, listen, I already have to leave my house at 5 a.m. I can't possibly get up any earlier to go and spend time with Jesus. And all I was able to say to that individual is, why do you have a job where you leave at 5 a.m.? Have you even remotely thought about changing your job? Or is this it? Is this just, no, for the next 40 years of my life, I just can't spend time with Jesus? Seems like wrong priorities, not no time. We need to think this through. And my friends, as Christians, we don't have time not to spend with Jesus. Why? Because we're in the greatest adventure of our life. <laughs> there are people in their thousands outside of this church that don't know Jesus. And he said us to them, there is a whole city that is waiting for this church to shine a light to them. Jesus himself says, listen, apart from me, you can do nothing, i.e., you need to spend time with me. Add to that the reality that you have a shadowy foe who wants to do all he can to take you out, to devour you, to scupper your Christian life and make you largely totally ineffective. Christopher Ashe, in his wonderful commentary on Job, says this about Satan when it comes to this issue. He said, when we wake up in the morning, what do we expect our day to be like? We may, of course, have expectations of a particular day, prospect of a good party, or apprehension about a visit to the dentist. That's usually myself. But in general, what do we expect from a normal day? For a Christian, what ought to be the idea of the normal Christian life? This is important because our idea of normality will govern whether we end up delighted or disappointed at the end of the day. I thought that was so insightful. And then he says this. Every morning, we ought to wake up and say to ourselves, there is a vicious, dark, and spiritual battle over me today. And Satan is very busy. See, my friends, when in the morning we get up and that alarm goes off, it's not a call to social media. It's a call to war. 
It is a call to war because Satan is ready for you. He's ready to take you out. Primary objective when you wake up in the morning, make sure these people spend no time with Jesus because it will totally affect their day. They will walk through their day with joy and peace and faith. We must not have that. Distract, distract, distract. And would you? Do we honestly think that 30 minutes on Facebook is going to change our lives? It's like candy floss. Momentarily pleasant. Within 10 minutes leaves a nasty taste in your mouth. It doesn't do anything. So too in our relationship with Jesus. Listen, a fight to sit at the feet of Jesus is a fight for your life. It's a fight for joy, fight for peace, fight for faith. Don't be duped. The last lie that Satan loves to peddle towards us is this final one, but it's just too late now. I've blown it too many times. I've been a Christian forever, and so I should be doing so much better. I mean, what must God be thinking of you now? You've been a Christian for in order you can't even spend time with him bring this up with no one don't tell anyone and even if you do want to go back to God now what is God going to be thinking of you it's a lie like all lies from Satan and all schemes they are carefully designed from stopping you returning at sitting at the feet of Jesus listen what is Jesus going to think of you if you come back to him well here's what I can tell you He is gracious and kind and loving. That's why in Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. One of the things that I love about that text is it's not like a one-time wonder. It's a daily invite. Come to me. And if it's been a time, for whatever reason, that you haven't come back to him, we know what's then going to happen because we see it in Luke chapter 15 through the prodigal son. And as the prodigal son returns to the father, he says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Listen, if for whatever reason it's been a time that you haven't been spending time with Jesus and you are put off thinking, what will he think? Listen, I'll tell you what he'll think. You will find him running towards you with grace and mercy and compassion because he wants to be with you. Don't believe the lies. In his wonderful commentary on Luke, Kent Hughes says the following. He says, Martha did not realize that at that critical time in Jesus' life, he would have preferred her company over her service and that he regarded her fellowship with him as more important than serving him a meal. For her sense of priorities were skewed. You know, maybe you're here today and you're aware my sense of priorities has been skewed. Well, how kind of the Lord then to sit us at his feet this afternoon and to help us unskew them. There's not two people in your great adventure. There's three. 
We need to be alert to him. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Sovereign Grace Church, Parramatta. Don't believe the lies. Sit at his feet and your life will never be the same again. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the way you speak to us. Lord, I thank you that you are gentle and lowly. You are kind and steadfast and faithful. And Lord, I thank you that as you address us this afternoon, there is not an ounce of irritation in your voice. Just kindness and compassion because you want us back and you want to keep us safe. Lord, I do pray for each and every person present. I pray that they would live lives sitting at your feet. And I pray that the fruit of that, would they would be fueled for this great adventure. That they would live lives of faith and joy and peace, not because everything's rosy, but because they recognize you are with them and you are faithful and you are good and you are kind. So Lord, help us to be people that sit at your feet and would all grace come to us as a result and would all glory go to you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.